welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 99 for Wednesday, March 18th, 2020. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. Music and soundtracks play such an important role in video games, whether it's just a few bars from a Super Mario Brothers game or a sound effect from Final Fantasy. Odds are you can identify the exact context almost immediately. These tunes and tones are so recognizable. Here on the Polygamer podcast, I've interviewed musicians such as Dr. Jessica Hebert and violinist Taylor Davis. And on my other former podcast, Indie Cider, I've interviewed composers Dren McDonald and Jonathan Greer. But what about the actual study of the music itself? Well, I was recently reading the boss fight books about Super Mario Brothers 3, and I came across the word ludomusicologist, referring to one of the people that was interviewed for that book. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is a ludomusicologist? And so I reached out to the person interviewed in that book, and I have her here on the show today. Please welcome Dr. Dana Plank. Hello, Dana. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for giving me your time. I'm so excited to talk about this entire realm of academic study that up until a few months ago, I wasn't even aware of. And yet it seems so interesting and so exciting. So, you know, without taking up an entire day, because I know you could talk about this, what is <laughs> ludomusicology? Quite simply, the study of game sound. Um, some folks focus more on the music. Others are invested in sort of a holistic sense of the soundscape. So that could include things like dialogue and sound effects. Um, I sort of do all, all of the above. Um, but generally, it is folks that are trained in musicology. So the study of music and its context, um, analysis and, and history, and then they apply the skills that they learn in grad school to video games. You mentioned grad school. Do you have a PhD in this? Indeed. I have a PhD from Ohio State University, and it was kind of an interesting route to get into video game music. I certainly didn't start my PhD thinking I was going to write about video games. So you are, you have a PhD in musicology. Is it a specialty or focus in specifically ludomusicology? Yeah. Uh, so the degree lists historical musicology, um, which is mostly to differentiate it from ethnomusicology, which focuses on focuses on world music. And it also differentiates it a bit from music theory, which tends to be a little bit more analytical and sort of digging through the notes. So I would say that the big difference between musicology and some of the other subfields is that musicology tends to be concerned with history and contexts. You said you didn't plan on studying video games. What was your goal when you went into this field? And how did you end up diverting? Yeah, so I, I have two degrees in violin performance. Um, I went to Cleveland Institute of Music and Case Western Reserve University for undergrad. And originally, I just thought, oh, I'm just going to be a violinist. Um, but I, I fell in love with music history. And for a while, I was really into early music, the Renaissance. Um, I did an undergraduate thesis on a composer, Justin Dupre. Um, and one of <laughs> Then I was like, I think I want to do this. I think I want to be a musicologist. Um, but then I went and got a master's in violin performance, just to be sure, right? And then I got interested in minimalist music. Um, that minimalism sort of started in the 1960s, um, composers like Philip Glass. And I was just really interested in the way that they pared down the sounds um, to just small little snippets and motives and, and, and germs and seeds 
And then they would expand outward from that, uh, a lot of repetition and looping. And so I got interested in this idea of making so much out of so little. So I wrote a master's thesis kind of on the, uh, in, for, my, um, for my applications for the PhD programs. I wrote a master's thesis on the music of Arvo Perret, who is an Estonian composer whose music is often described as incredibly minimalist and sort of spiritual and timeless and chant-like. And so I, I wrote a thesis on that. Then I got to grad school and said, I'm going to do minimalist opera. Uh, I was really interested in Philip Glass's operas, Einstein on the Beach, um, Akhenaten, and the one that I thought I was going to write my dissertation on was Satyagraha, which is a, a really abstracted retelling of the life of Gandhi using texts from the Bhagavad Gita. So very, very far afield from ludomusicology, but I had grown up with video games in the house. My old brother, Matt, is five years older than me, and I think I was about five when he brought home the Nintendo. And I was always watching. I was young enough that I wasn't really doing a lot of playing yet. So I, I was noticing things in a different way. So I was taking my little Walkman tape recorder and recording the soundtrack. You know, I'd go down, I'd hit the pause button, I'd record the, the music, and then I would stop it. And then I would be able to listen back to the soundtracks. So I had been doing that since I was really, really little. So throughout grad school, I'm thinking, oh, okay, I'm just, I'm going to be the, the good musicologist and pick this upstanding topic and, and work on it. And I just did a one-off paper on Mega Man for my advisor. And he was like, I really want to see you do more with this. <laughs> there's, there's something here. I, I really like this. This work is interesting. It seems like it's really new. And then I start, started going down the rabbit hole with that and realizing that my interest in minimalism really transferred to early game sound in particular, that the, the number of channels being limited and the kind of looping aesthetic uh, and the idea of making so much out of just a few simple components. So that, that was really how I jumped over to video game music. Your advisor said that it seemed like this was a new field. How long has ludomusicology been around? I would say most of us would say the start point is Karen Collins' Game Sound, which came out in 2007. Um, a lot of folks use that as sort of a textbook for the field. It's pretty chronological. It starts with arcade music, Atari, and kind of goes through different generations of sound hardware, explaining what was possible and sort of the, the sounds that you can expect on each system. And Karen followed that up with, with a couple other books on, on game sound. From Pac-Man to Pop Music is one that I like to use. It's a, an edited collection that talks about just a lot of, a lot of different things, but it's useful because it, it references um, using licensed music in games and things like that. Uh, so not just focusing on newly composed music. Um, so Karen really got the ball rolling. And then I feel like it's sort of simmered for a few years. <laughs> so while, while other folks were starting to get interested in the field, um, one of the other early articles that came out was Will Gibbons' Blip Bloop Bach, <laughs> which he published in Music in the Moving Image. And he focused on NES games like Tetris and Battle of Olympus and Pirates. Uh, the, the earliest version of Pirates. And for a while, that was kind of it. Um, but there were folks that were getting interested in this and starting to sort of do some conference papers at, at musicology conferences where they could get accepted. 
and uh, Will Gibbons and Stephen Reale of Youngstown State and Neil Lerner of Davidson College put together uh, the first North American conference on video game music, and that was held at Youngstown in 2014. So I was still doing my graduate coursework. I, I don't even remember how I heard about this conference, but I sort of saw the call for paper. Somebody had forwarded it to me, maybe. Um, I, I put my hat in the ring <laughs> and I was accepted. And that was the first time that I had been accepted to a conference. And it was the first conference I'd ever gone to, really. So <laughs> I, I was pretty nervous about it. And I ended up being the very first slot. I was 8 a.m. on that Saturday had to give my paper. <laughs> I was so nervous. But that was sort of the the real genesis of the field uh, to me was was seeing that activity sort of bloom here in the US. Wow. So you dove right in, you've spoken at conferences, you've published papers. What does a ludomusicologist do? Is it primarily these academic aspects? That's a really good question. I would say most of us are sort of trained in an academic setting. And, and therefore end up in the realm of maybe adjunct professoring, um, more and more common. <laughs> um, some folks have the tenure track jobs and are, you know, pushing toward tenure and trying to, to build up a portfolio. There are a few independent scholars that are not currently teaching or affiliated with a, a higher education institution. Um, most of us, I would say, are not in the realm of like music journalism, for example. So the types of things that you might read on Kotaku about game music, mm, I can't think of anything in particular that's been written by somebody that I would say is in our field. So that's something that I think we need to work on a little bit is to get a little bit more public facing with our work, because a lot of us are just sort of in, in our tracks um, and then we publish our work and it may not be as accessible as we'd like. Some of these journals have paywalls and we're not even, we don't see money for that. We see a line on our curriculum vitae for that. So somebody will say, oh, wow, I wanted to download your, your Tetris article, Dana, but it was $18 to download the PDF. You know, do you, do you get a cut of that? I don't. <laughs> so we're trying to find some, some more public facing venues to publish in. And there are, a group of us, uh, Ryan Thompson, Karen Cook, and Julianne Grasso, uh, and I, every Thursday night, we stream on Ryan's channel on Twitch, and we we call it the Ludo Musicology Gaming, and we, we stop and we talk about the music in real time as we're playing a game, and we've built up a really nice community there, and I think that's helping to sort of bridge the gap between us and the folks that are really passionate about game music, some of the OC remix people, uh, game composers, you know, practitioners, uh, game audio professionals. We're trying to build those bridges. What is the address here, Twitch channel? Twitch.tv slash Bardic Knowledge. Awesome. I will include a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. It's every Thursday night, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern. We usually go 9 to 11. We're pl currently playing Final Fantasy VIII, the... I hate calling it a remaster. <laughs> they haven't really done much to it other than a little facelift on the graphics, but we're currently playing eight. Uh, we're hoping to play seven when that comes out, or I guess the, the first little piece of that's already out. So we're going to, we're going to eventually do seven and uh, we sort of spice, spice it up every three weeks or so of a long form game. We do what we call shenanigaming. 
and we'll we'll just pick like little NES games that we can kind of blitz through and, and talk about some of our favorite themes um, or just a demo of something new that we think is interesting. Like we had a little demo of the the second Ori and the Blind Forest game um, this last Thursday. Is the new game even better than the original, like Game Informer says? Oh my goodness. I mean, we, we only maybe played the first kind of cutscene opening. <laughs> um, so maybe 10 minutes in, and it was, it was astonishingly beautiful. The music was incredible. I recommend even just the, the soundtrack, I believe, is free to listen to on Bandcamp right now. So I highly recommend just taking a listen through it. It's, it's a wonderful achievement for everybody involved. Awesome. I will check it out. So you've been playing Ori in the Blind Forest. You're looking forward to playing the Final Fantasy VII Remaster. But it seems like most of your studies have been with classical games or retro games. Is that correct? Absolutely. I think, uh, I think it was Karen Cook who told me once that I'm like a medievalist of game studies. <laughs> I studied the early, I'm the early music specialist. <laughs> One of them anyway. We certainly have other folks that work in the 8-bit era, but I've just always been really drawn to, to that, that sound. Uh, I'm, I'm really into my square waves. <laughs> is that nostalgia or is there something else about that era that draws you in? I'm sure it's partially nostalgia. Um, for the sake of the PhD dissertation, I guess I, I should quickly say what that was. So I, I was interested in game music, but that alone does not a dissertation make. So the other area that I started getting really passionate about in grad school was disability studies. I took a theorizing difference course that sort of covered gender, sexuality, ability, you know, different different areas of human identity. And I, I really got interested in disability studies and started, started thinking, like, how does this really translate to music? So I found uh, work by Neil Lerner, who ends up also being a, uh, an arcade music scholar, early, early game music scholar. Neil Lerner is also published in Disability Studies, uh, as particularly as it relates to music and film. And the work of the theorist Joseph Strauss, he, he's done some really interesting work on music and disability. So I started reading about those people writing in that field. And I started thinking like, I wish I could combine these two things. You know, I've been writing things, I had been writing a few things on disability as it related to not only composers uh, that, that may have been writing from, from a disabled standpoint, but also um, depictions. I was really interested in the, in, in the way we're trying to signal to a listener some sort of disability whether that is a musical stutter or some kind of indication of an unhealthy body. There's a surprisingly rich field of just representing non-normative body states in music. So I got interested in that. And then I was doing video game stuff. And I, I remember sitting in a coffee shop with my advisor and saying, I wish I could find a game that sort of thematizes the health of the body. And then I, I was just sitting there sipping and went, oh my goodness, so ma- it's all of them. <laughs> it's, it's so many games focus on the health of the player and they signal to you changes in the body state with sound, especially early games. You know, there, there's a sound effect that tells you you're being injured or that you were losing or gaining an ability or um, that you need to be fearful of a particular character because they're trying to indicate to you that they're, they're mentally unstable. And so once I realized how 
pervasive it was, I had my dissertation. A number of case studies on representations of injury, disease, and mental illness in video game soundscapes. And so once I had that kernel, there are a ton of games I could look at. I decided to focus on 8 and 16-bit video games, partially because it was a repertoire I already had at hand. I didn't have to go and play through new things. I already I already knew all these games from my childhood. So there was definitely a nostalgia element there. Um, it was partially just a matter of wanting to limit my scope a little bit and pick games that are iconic and that my my committee, which was mostly non-gamers, would find accessible and be able to to look up the music from and sort of have have a good sense of what I was writing about. It was never my intention to really stay in the most canonic franchises, Zelda, Mario, you know, that sort of thing. But the dissertation certainly had a lot of that. I've made a really concerted effort ever since graduating to work on more like indie games or games that are just a little bit less common in in game history. It's really interesting to think about ability and disability from an oral perspective, because normally I would default to thinking about it in two other terms. Visually, like in Resident Evil, the screen gets redder, mm-hmm. or even in gameplay, like your character starts limping and their ability to move is reduced. So you mentioned how audio is used, but can you give us some examples? Sure. Canonic example, Zelda 1, you're down to one heart. What happens? Oh, it starts beeping at you. Yeah, that beep is both out of phase with the the tempo, the rhythm of the rest of the track playing behind it, and it's it's a tone that doesn't fit in the scale of the key of the track that's being used. So it, it is very clearly set off from anything that could be underneath it. The, the tone is such that you cannot ignore it. It interrupts a sound channel in the case of the NES, to tell you something is wrong, you need to do something. And of course, that's going to cause a little spike in your physiology, you're gonna you're gonna have a little adrenaline rush and some stress hormones, you know, and your heart rate might go up a little bit. So that that's a very instantaneous connection of some sort of in game bodily state uh, to the player's own body and physiological response, which I, I found really interesting. So that that's a classic. Sound effects are often used to sort of prime the player to act in a certain way in reaction to the change in game state. So that's that's a wonderful example and a very, very clear one. Um, also in the dissertation, my sort of canonic disease example, <laughs> I looked at the tracks for Dr. Mario. If you go to the screen where you can select the music, the names of the tracks are Fever and Chills. And so I was intrigued with that. You know, how, how are we musically depicting these symptoms of illness, the, these physical states, the shivers and the, you know, the heat? Um, so a lot, of, a lot of work there on the timbres chosen, the warmth of a baseline and indicating the heat, the amount of activity kind of suggesting like the raised body temperature, the, the shivering timbres and the glissandos used to kind of indicate a chattering sensation. There are a lot, a lot of interesting ways that uh, Hip Tanaka implied things that we could go, oh yeah, I, see, I hear how that's chills. I hear how that's having a fever. It's pretty abstract, but when you play it for someone, uh, they, they can instantly make a connection. Just all they, all they have to be given is, this is called fever, and they start hearing those connections in the music. 
How much of that do you think is deliberate? Like when the creators of Zelda were choosing that tone, do you think they said, let's make it out of tempo and a different key? Or did they just say, let's pick this noise and players will notice it? I think it was incredibly intentional. I, I, I can imagine that the thought process was, if we're going to signal something to a player, a signal has to be obvious. It has to be something that they're not going to misread as being a part of the the underlying track. So at the very least, they would have wanted to differentiate it because it's supposed to be carrying information to the player. So sound design often talks about these these sorts of levels of awareness and how there are a lot of things that can sort of blend together. Um, but you can only have so much going on at one time if you want the player to notice a particular thing. If a game is trying to introduce confusion, one of the, one of the ways that they might do that orally is by clouding up the soundscape a little bit. So you might have a lot of sort of almost auditory hallucinations, you know, these different sounds coming in that are meant to distract you. It sounds like even though these games were, by today's standards, technologically constrained, the creators, the artists, the musicians were still able to do a lot with it. So I guess you would say that modern music isn't necessarily better and retro games are not necessarily less so? Absolutely. All music composition is a process of delimitation. So the composer is having to make decisions about their performing forces and their the notes they're choosing and you know how they're incorporating chromaticism or textural changes and things like that. So already uh, the process of composing is about setting limits because before you have limits, you don't have anything on a page, right? So you decide, I'm going to write in, in the key of F minor. That's already a decision you've made that limits your options. And then you can kind of work within the system of rules that you've learned, um, whether that's inductively. As listeners, we all know a lot more than we think we do, even if we're not trained in music. The simplest way that I can demonstrate that, I'm going to turn on my keyboard really quick here next to my, my desk, is if I play... Okay, if I play... And I stop on that note. Everyone's going, oh, play it, finish it. They, they want it. They want to hear the end of it. So you've learned you have a, a, a culture around you where music that lands on that note tends to go up to the next note. It tends to go home. So whether or not you realize it, you have this musical expectation that gets set up. Um, and when it's violated, you notice, even if you don't have the technical terminology to say so. So the fact that the early game equipment, the software, the hardware, Maybe you only had five channels, um, but functionally, most of the time on the NES, four. <laughs> we t didn't tend to have all five going at once. Um, if you have four voices and one of them's percussion, generally one of them's often bass line, that leaves you with counter melody or harmony and then a melody. That, that sort of three voice plus percussion texture may seem pretty limited, but a great deal of chamber music throughout history was written for a trio. So there's... There's plenty we can do within that space. And it's just at any given state, I don't think anybody in the 80s was sitting there going, oh man, my system is so limited. You have to remember that anytime that a new way of working in game audio comes out, it's state of the art and, and folks are adapting to it. And instead of thinking of it as what they can't do, they're looking, they're exploring the the, the boundaries of, of what's possible and, and figuring out really novel ways of using the different timbres 
of the system and, and ways to kind of mess with the programming to sort of fit more in less space. So there's a lot of ingenuity that happens because of the, the limitation. And so it's really hard for me to say that like, there's this teleological progression of, oh, well, now you can just record a, a symphony orchestra so the game music is necessarily more complex and better. And the best example of that is uh, several years ago, I was teaching chamber music and I had two students that were getting bored of their Mozart um, that they were working on and they had been transcribing some video game music kind of behind the scenes. And when they finally told me, they didn't realize that I was doing the PhD in video game music. And so I was like, guys, this is, this is perfect. Why don't we work on this? And the orchestra teacher came to me having overheard that we were going to be putting together some video game music. And they were like, I don't know about this. I'm a little, I'm a little concerned that it's not, you know, rigorous enough that it's not grade level appropriate. Well, I showed them, I showed that teacher the arrangement that these students had done of music from the first two Castlevania games. And I'll tell you that, that uh, quelled any fears. Those those pieces are incredibly difficult rhythmically. They are in very sophisticated key signatures. So if we're talking about grade level skills in a K through 12 setting, they were playing several grade levels ahead of where they should have been because they were really passionate about the music. And they, they worked through things that in a way they shouldn't have been able to do at that age because they just, they were had such a connection to the music that they were doing things that then translated over to their Mozart and their, their Bach and their Beethoven and all the, all the canonic music that they were playing in their orchestra classes. So earlier game music had complexity in different ways is probably the best way to put that. Sure. Constraints can definitely breed creativity, just like in Professor Nick Montfort's book, Racing the Beam, about how (laughs) all the programming tricks for the Atari 2600 is just astounding. Yes, I love that book. I'm glad you brought it up. (laughs) And it's one of the things I love about the Apple II, which is a computer from 1977 that I still publish a quarterly magazine about and still go to an annual conference about because people love seeing what they can do within the constraints of one megahertz CPU and 48K of RAM. That's far more of a challenge than nowadays where you can just throw more RAM at the problem and enable poor programming. Not to say that's always the case, but you have more solutions available to you today. Absolutely. And I think it's very telling that there is never a lack of games coming out that use a chip tune aesthetic, you know, and that you that use the eight and sixteen bit graphic design. It's it's accessible, but it also provides some some really interesting challenges to a, a composer or a, you know a game designer. Certainly, everything from you know the Shovel Knight types of games to uh, Stardew Valley. You know, Stardew Valley looks like an, a Super Nintendo game, and it sounds like one. We have successfully defended the abilities of retro games. Glad, glad that I can, if I can do one thing <laughs> today. <laughs> but we don't want to do so at the expense of modern games because clearly they are capable of some wonderful symphonies as well. Yes. So what, what has the development of technology in the last 30 years enabled video game music to do that it couldn't do 30 years ago? Well, I should say that, you know, even as I brought up this sort of retro game redux (laughs) that we have going on and all of these games that are consciously choosing that aesthetic, they are doing it with the ability to not be 
fully constrained. Uh, so they aren't necessarily, they might be doing more audio channels than were possible on those systems. So they're, they're taking the sound because there seems to be something about the, the, sim- the simplicity of it that makes it almost more universal to people. Um, I'm thinking of like Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics. He talks about cartooning and why is a, just a smiley face, you know, two dots in a line and a circle so universal to us versus a, a really carefully rendered drawing of somebody. And it's sort of the, the notion that you insert yourself into it. Um, it becomes everybody instead of being a specific person. And I think there's something about the game audio that sort of speaks to universality too, because it is being electronically generated. It's not a specific player in a specific moment in time recording in a studio. It's, it's the same every single time. Um, and there's something about that that seems to draw people. But so we are absolutely expanding outward, um, even within that, that sort of sound world. But now we can do all kinds of things. You know, if we have, if you have the budget for it, you can hire an, uh, an orchestra and studio space. And it, like you were recording a film soundtrack, uh, have hours and hours of music performed live by highly trained professionals that can do anything that you can imagine. But even with that capability, one thing that I think is unique to game audio, perhaps even compared to film scoring, which is kind of its closest cousin, is the the amount of interplay between those earlier technological digital processing um, and, and this modern live sound. So there's a lot more hybridity in sound sources, um, intelligent ways of post-processing, you know, things that you've recorded to get a particular effect in a sound. And there's just a lot of, a lot more music that happens in the average video game than there is for an entire film. John Williams films aside, where it is pretty carpeted wall to wall with, with music in the background, most film scores are really not that much music all told. You know, we're not seeing 70 minutes out of a 90 minute film filled with sound because there's other things happening. There's dialogue that we might cut the music happening. So the cues are not necessarily filling the space the way they are in video games. This was really apparent to me in my candidacy exams, which was to kind of get to the next level of moving from being a student to actually writing the dissertation. And it was a process of the committee would give you questions. So every week you would have to write a 40 page paper, turn it in, get the next question, did that for four weeks and then did a little defense. And my advisor gave me a question about the differences between a film, film queuing and and video game queuing. And he was like, yeah, you could, you know, transcribe uh, maybe all the cues in a video game. And I laughed at him because I was like, Let's take Chrono Trigger, for example. Do you know how many hours of music that would make? <laughs> there's, you know, look at, look at how many tracks there are. I, I want to say there's at least 75 music tracks in that game. I'm like, that's so much more material than there is for just about any film score I could have chosen. Um, so I, I had to sort of show him that that's not really going to be possible. I think you're thinking there's a lot less music in games than there is. Clearly, film soundtracks are not interactive. They change with what's happening on the screen, of course, but they're cued to do so. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't affect 
the 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 viewer cannot affect the soundtrack. Right. With video games, they are more interactive. You know, when the player starts dying, the game may speed up, or when they hit a certain cue in the plot, you know, it that changes. That wasn't always the case. I mean, with Mario Brothers, you mentioned uh, and Zelda's different sound effects, like when you get the star, it speeds up. When you start dying, there's a chime. But would you say that video game soundtracks have grown? more interactive and thus more disparate from film soundtracks? Mm. Well, you know, classic academic example, (laughs) classic academic moment is I will couch this and say that I'm not a film music scholar by any means. So uh, don't at me film scholars, but um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I'd, I'd say in a sense that that that's one thing that's drawn the two apart, but The other thing is that a lot of folks are doing both. Um, A lot of major film composers at some point end up working on a video game and and vice versa. So there's something about music and media more generally. Folks are able to apply some of the same ideas. Um, What makes video games really interesting is you don't have a set duration. You aren't told I need 36 seconds of music to fit the scene. And then you get sent a screener of it and, you know, you're, you're tracking it exactly to what's what has already been filmed and edited. If somebody decides to stay in an area, maybe they go get a cup of coffee or something and they, they just like leave the game. It's going to have to figure out, well, does it loop? What does it do? So you have to account for an infinite number of player decisions to engage or not engage with what's happening. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people that I, I talk to every NPC in a town. <laughs> So I, I'm one of those people. Wait, that, you, you, you mean there are people who don't do that? Oh, oh, my husband. What? <laughs> he he plays stuff like so quickly and like he's, he's very, very good at games. But I'm always like when he played Final Fantasy VI the first time, uh, you know, I'm, I'm off to the side being like, check the clock for an elixir. <laughs> and he's like, I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> I have a game uh-huh. to play, you know? So there, there are definitely folks that are a little more utilitarian in their approach to the uh. game. But I, I know that I'm somebody that tends to really take my time wandering through a space. Uh, he made fun of me, you know, the opposite direction when Assassin's Creed Origins came out, because I'm a huge Egyptology nerd off to the side of my musicology research. And so I'm like going up to the tomb walls, like looking at all the hieroglyphs. And he's like, so you're going to play the game? Like... <laughs> because <laughs> I wasn't moving forward even the, in the opening tutorial. I was just like looking at this this gorgeous world that had been rendered for me. So I know the game designers probably appreciate both forms of, of players, but they do ha- that does mean that there's a challenge because I'm spending 10 minutes in a space that somebody else might be there for a minute and a half. So what do you do? Do you loop it? At what point do you loop it? How much music you're kind of averaging out how long you think a player is going to be in the space. And then you have to figure out what it does from there. There is increasingly um, more dynamic forms of audio or generative audio, where it is kind of writing things on the fly based on algorithms that have been set by the composer. So they, they feed in different seeds and and sort of ways of manip and then they write algorithms that manipulate how the sound is going to appear. Um, and that sort of sets the rule set, but then it's it's being generated new new every time you're in that space, which keeps it really fresh and interesting. But it's a totally different set of skills 
to write in that style than to just do traditional composition. So you have to be very much a savvy programmer and a, and a highly trained musician. And I think that's the other biggest difference from, from film music is that game music has always been so intertwined with programming and, and with the tech side of things. Um, early on, they they couldn't just plug in a MIDI keyboard and and have it feed directly into the system. We're you know we're putting things in assembly language on the NES, so it comes later that we start getting more of the ability to just translate what we have on a keyboard right into the chip. So that's the other big difference for me from film music is just this marriage to the technology as it evolves. And that's how we end up with sound effects like in Cubert. Yeah. Because they couldn't just digitize speech, so they just jammed a bunch of s- signals and wires together and got Qbert swearing. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> now, you mentioned that outside of John Williams' films, you don't often see 70 out of 90 minutes of a film being scored. But there's a lot to be said for silence, too. One of my favorite films of all time is Failsafe, which has no music, no soundtrack whatsoever. Can you speak a little bit about silence in video games? Mm, I gave a paper on this once. <laughs> what? What a coincidence. What a coincidence. Uh, yeah. So I, as I was building the dissertation, one of the first things I needed to do sort of, again, my committee was mostly non-gamers. Uh, I was lucky enough to have Neil Lerner, who I've mentioned twice now already, because he was sort of the perfect person to sit on that committee. He did the disability studies and he did the game music. The rest of my committee was mostly non-gamers. And so I had to do a couple chapters sort of like, what is a video game? <laughs> not not quite that that basic, but there were a lot of things about game sound that it was important to show, you know, what were the channels? Um, what were some basics of like, what, when I'm talking about a square wave, what, what is that? Um, so I had to put all these different things into the dissertation. And I had a chapter where I was sort of creating a, a functional framework for the different types of sounds that, that can appear in a video game. So Karen Collins has in game sound, she has, she has frameworks for looking at sort of how a sound is triggered by the player. And if, um, if it's diegetic, so it relates to the game world and the narrative itself, or if it's just sort of background music that like you can't imagine that the player in the world would be hearing. Um, and so she was really interested in both that and then how the player could influence changes in the sound. And that was a really useful taxonomy, but I needed something that was a little bit more, okay, here's a sound effect, here's dialogue, here is a a musical track that's trying to evoke a certain emotional state, you know, and then there's sort of a, a spectrum here where things can sort of go between. And as I was laying out that taxonomy, I realized that silence is a functionally grammatical part of the soundscape. And so if the music cuts very suddenly in a video game, what's that going to make you feel? like something's gone wrong. It's going to make you suddenly notice things in the environment. Even if we don't drop all sound entirely, if it just drops to sort of the atmospheric sound, you might hear the wind rustling in a tree, but the music cuts and there's no dialogue. Um, that does that draws your attention in really interesting ways. Uh, it evokes just a really powerful response in a player. But there's other ways that we can sort of imply silence. So I described in that silence uh, chapter, section of the chapter, I ended up talking about how 
in music cognition, we have this idea that if music kind of has a lot of regular features, it's kind of going along, it's soft, it doesn't have a lot of dynamic variety, it's repetitive, it's on the slower side, eventually you're going to stop consciously perceiving it. It's still happening, you're still hearing it, but your brain sort of goes, oh, okay, that's fine. Like, I get that. I'm going to move on and look for other things to, you know, focus my attention on. We call that habituating to the stimulus. So it becomes habitual. You don't notice it anymore. Um, and so if a game designer writes a track like that, that's sort of lulling and just gets you into the rhythms of gameplay, you sort of stop consciously perceiving it. And so that's a silencing as well that they can then use to great effect if they then put in a dishabituating stimulus, something pops up, a sound effect, and then and then it kind of jolts you out and you you notice where you are again or you pay attention to whatever has happened. For me, it makes me much more tense when there's silence, especially in a game like Silent Hill, because you're waiting for something to jump out at you, whether it's visually or audibly. Yes. So frequently, silence is terrifying to people because silence means the void. It means obliteration, death, you know? There's no such thing as a truly silent state unless everything has gone very seriously wrong. You at least expect there to be a little bit of atmospheric sound happening, a car going by or something. And when that's not there, uh, it can be really, really powerful for the player and make them feel isolated um, and, and fearful about there can't be nothing here. I've played a video game. I kn- there's something here, right? Where is it? And it, it just makes you more tense and, and fearful and anxious and wondering what's going to pop out at you next. Yeah, absolutely. We just mentioned Silent Hill. We've talked about games like Final Fantasy VII and Chrono Trigger. You've given some wonderful talks about Final Fantasy VI, Super Mario RPG. These are all titles that are likely familiar to our listeners. Are there some more obscure niche or indie titles that you found really musically fascinating? Well, Lena Rain's score for Celeste is just absolutely incredible. I highly recommend it. I won't give away too much of what I'm planning for that, but if anyone knows that I've got this disability studies bent, they know that, and they've played that game, they know that mental health is a, an important element and sort of the, the facing down parts of yourself that are challenging and sort of figuring out how to integrate with the things that you might want to run away from. And, and so the, I, the, I've been working along those lines. I think that's just an absolutely incredible score. Um, another one that we played on the stream that my friend uh, Elizabeth Hamilton, uh, wonderful, wonderful music theorist and somebody whose taste in video games is unparalleled, <laughs> uh, recommended to us is Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. It's definitely more along the lines of a walking simulator, but that's another one that has the most astonishing sound soundscape. The entire world just feels so melancholy and eerie um and the for folks that haven't played it the the premise is sort of that everyone has disappeared and you're you're left walking around trying to kind of pick up clues in the environment and and, you know there are folks it's a little town in england and so the the little anglican vicar you know there's diary entries that are suggesting as people are just vaporizing basically like 
is it a virus that's that's somehow like completely removing all traces of the person or are they actually getting raptured up to heaven is this is this some sort of judgment and the the game's pretty open ended about that um and the the soundscape is fascinating it uses a lot of sort of english folk tuny sorts of sounds and beautiful singing um it's very intimate it's very sparse um it's it's just an incredible score i i, I recommend that one definitely I was excited to hear you talk about Celeste, that dragon cancer, and uh, To the Moon, for example, because mm-hmm. I know one musician who says that he loves OC Remix, but he's tired of everything being Final Fantasy, Chrono Trigger, and Mega Man. I know. And <laughs> and while, you know, when folks ask, oh, what, what are your favorite game scores, I often say the first six Mega Mans. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I love them, but I also don't have a paper on them. What would I, what would I do? Hey, guys, this music is great. Like, you need a point, right? <laughs> so there are definitely papers where, and that's kind of something we try to steer younger folks that are trying to get into the field. We're like, yeah, it's good. But like, and <laughs> all of us know it's great. You know, you can, you can, we can sit here and nerd out and listen to the music together and enjoy it. But certainly the academic work needs to have something else going on to make it viable. Wasn't your very first paper about Mega Man? Yeah, it was. Well, I didn't publish that. I didn't uh, really expand it. It was like a little seminar paper. So, Hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, And (laughs) at that point, my advisor's like, I remember I was writing about the boss loops being shorter than the level loops. And he said, what's a boss? I mean, that's that's what I mean when I say there were things in my dissertation that <laughs> I'm going to have to cut. Like, do I, I'm not going to have to explain what a boss is to most of the folks that would be reading a book about video game music, right? One would hope. Yes. One would hope. <laughs> so <laughs> at least I don't need to. I don't need to spend a lot of a lot of ink on that. So hmm. um, the other one that has really affected me recently and that I ended up giving a paper on last October was that dragon cancer. That game got a fair amount of attention in the in the press. It was a young couple who lost their one and a half year old son to a brain tumor. And the game sort of chronicles that last year. And so you are put into positions where as as the player, you're not able to really do anything. It sort of gives you this learned helplessness of this thing is happening. And I'm, I'm trying to just exist in the moment, keep my hope alive, make memories with my son, but it's not looking good. And that is just an absolutely astonishing score. It's a heavy game. Um, if, if you really need a cry, I mean, you do not have to be a parent for that game to, to just punch you in the gut. It is, it's incredible. Yeah, I played that game in advance of episode number 11 of this Polygamer podcast six years ago when I had Ryan Green, the father, yes. on this show. You know what? That was before the game had even fully came out. He gave me a preview copy of the game, and I played the first few levels, and I was in tears, and I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. I know. And I, I should say, well, well, I did that. When I was interested in writing about that paper or writing the paper on, on this game. I I was able to reach out to John Hillman, the composer, and he was so incredibly generous with his time. And he sent me resources. You know, I told him I'm often, even though I'm a musicologist and we tend to be a little bit more based in contexts and how music is used and the people involved with it. uh, I tend to be a little bit more of a, a theorist on the side. I always like to start from the notes and, and making some kind of argument about what am I hearing? You know, how, how is sound being used? So 
I'm, I'm definitely more of a blended methodology. And I told him I often do these transcriptions. And he said, well, I actually did compose things in, in music notation. He's trained, uh, has a degree in composition. So he sort of did a blended method anyway. And he sent me all his sketches. I mean, it was such an incredible resource. And what a, what a beautiful thing to compare what I had already transcribed by ear into notation to the way that he had written it down. It, it was just an absolutely humbling experience to know that uh, he wanted to share that with me and that he was, a- he was able to pass those things along so that I, I would get a different view into analyzing the music of the game. That's actually something I want to ask you about, which is when you're researching older games from the 80s and 90s, you may not have easy access to the primary resources, the composers, the software. Whereas nowadays, like with That Dragon Cancer, you can reach out to the person who wrote the soundtrack and they reply to your tweets and your emails. So does researching modern games, is that easier because you have more access to primary resources? Yes and no. The beautiful thing is that, you know, most of our uh, our uh, composers of study are still alive. And and so as long as you have a way to speak to them, for some folks uh, working in early game audio, if they don't have a Japanese language background, there could be a barrier there. Um, or maybe they're working on a Nintendo game and Nintendo can be pretty proprietary. So you might not be able to get access. But the issue of game companies being proprietary does still exist. So a composer can give you such incredible insight into their workflow, their process, you know, their inspiration, um, their, their influences, but they, they may not be able to send you, for example, stems um, that you could then open up and, and look through and pick apart. So they could be constrained by, by copyright issues because the game company will then own the score. Um, and that, that varies by composer. But the beautiful thing is we have the opportunity, as long as we can figure out a way to contact the person, we can reach out and ask, we can send an email, we can say, you know, hey, I'm work, I'm a scholar, I'm working on a paper on your game. Um, would you be interested in talking to me either just answering questions through email, or maybe setting up a, a call um, that we can use in the paper and uh, I have found nothing but just the most gracious, gracious interactions in game audio. Everyone ha- that I have approached has been so excited that that academia is engaging with the music and and taking it seriously and wanting to even look at this music. Um, but that happens in earlier audio too. I did a paper a couple years ago on the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves adaptation for the. Was it SNES? Super SNES. I think it was NES. Robin Hood. Yeah, of course it was NES. What am I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was a Robin Hood Prince of Thieves adaptation from 1991. And I was able to track down the the composer for that on LinkedIn of all places. I had just been kind of listening to some early game soundtracks. I just fell in love with the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves game score, and it sounds nothing like the film at all. It, it sounded almost renaissance It was kind of dance-like, and I don't know, it, it just sounded like early music in a way that was really arresting, and I just couldn't stop listening to it. So I was like, I'm going to find a way to write a paper about this. Well, I found Paul Webb on LinkedIn, and he's, he's not doing as much with... Uh, 
video game composition anymore. You know, he was multi-talented programmer um, and has kind of moved into other areas, but I was able to track him down on LinkedIn and send, send a message and say, Hey, would you be willing to talk? And um, even though that game was from 1991, you know, he, he still remembered it a good deal. And um, there were even clips that I had of that interview where he was saying like, I can't even believe that anybody's going back and listening to this. Like he ended up finding people on YouTube that had uploaded the entire soundtrack independent of the gameplay. And he was like, there are people that listen to this like outside of the game for fun. I'm like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really the greatest thing about working in this field is the opportunity for connecting to other people in a way that I can't do if I'm researching a composer from the medieval era, you know, (laughs) I can't talk to them. I can't, I can't get in their head, but I get these incredible connections both to the composers and to the fellow scholars in the field that are nerdy and excited and and brilliant and pushing you to want to want to be better and and do better. That's the, the biggest takeaway is that this field more so than just about any other pocket of musicology that I've ever encountered, the folks are giving and compassionate and gracious and excited to connect and build genuine, deep friendships with the folks we work with. And how many fields can say that? And why do you think this field can say that? I think there's something about when you're a nerd, (laughs) there's such a deep, (laughs) a deep passion and it exists in a place that's pretty deep down and, and almost vulnerable um, to admit how much you love something to somebody else, no matter what that is. And when you really connect with someone on, a, on that deep level and it gets down into that, the, the depths of, of where that comes from, I think that you feel seen and, and like you've just found your people. I love that. I love that about the field. I, I know that we strive really hard to not as much as we can not be gatekeepers. We want folks to come to the conference and participate. And, uh, and that doesn't mean that we have to sacrifice academic rigor. You know, we still, we still want to push each other to be really strong, but we want to bring newcomers into the fold and we want them to get their ideas out there and, and share with us. And, you know, I've, I found it very easy to approach people in the field and send them a draft of something I'm working on and, they'll take their time to read it and, and send it back with beautiful comments. It's, it's just such an incredible experience being in this field. And it's why I'm never going to leave it. <laughs> I'm not going to go off and suddenly, you know, be the minimalist opera scholar. I may do side projects in other areas of musicology and I do plan to do that. But uh, I think my home is always going to be in Ludo because these people are the best you're going to find. Well, that includes you, of course. You're one of the, the best. I mean, you're so passionate and you're getting out there. You're giving your talks at MAGFest and on YouTube. And you're also organizing, speaking of connecting people, the North American Conference on Video Game Music happening in just a few weeks. Absolutely. Yeah, I've been on the planning committee uh, kind of behind the scenes for a couple of years working with building the program. And it was a, a real shock to us as the... COVID-19 continues to spread and so many universities are closing down that 
we we started this conversation several weeks ago before it was getting as serious as it as it is. We reached out to Elizabeth Medina Gray at Ithaca. We were going to be hosting the conference there, and we started talking about what are some of our contingency plans. We may have, if we hold this in person, we may have a lot of presenters cancel um, that are not able to travel to the conference, um, or you know, heaven forbid, somebody actually is is ill and needs to self quarantine. So we started talking about how how might this affect the conference and what are our options. And Ryan Thompson that we stream with and who teaches broadcasting, Twitch, OBS, you know, esports, all that stuff at Michigan State, he sort of sent a little email to the committee saying, hey, guys, (laughs) this is what I do. Um, And if any conference is going to go to a virtual only format, shouldn't it be us? Like we can lead the way and show other conferences how this might be done. And we have we have the tech to do it. We have the the folks with the expertise to make that happen. And the committee started talking and sort of seeing what the university was planning to do. And it and we decided to make that decision as early as possible so that folks could cancel their travel and and we could think about holding this alternative format. So Ryan is actually planning on coming out uh, here to to me, and we're going to broadcast the conference. Folks are going to Skype in and give their papers. And then we're going to broadcast it, I believe through Ryan's channel, Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash Bardic Knowledge, which I think will be linked in the show notes here. So it will be free to attend. So April 4th and 5th, we'll be broadcasting and folks can participate in chat and send questions. And uh, we're talking about doing in the breaks between sessions, maybe doing things like Jackbox games that folks can jump in and play. For where, from wherever they are. So it'll still have kind of a fun, interactive moment as we're all just sitting at home in our respective homes, uh, watching this very unusual format of a conference. Um, so we're really excited about that. I have a really killer office. If any of you end up watching our, our Ludo Musicology Twitch streams ever, you'll see that uh, behind me, I just have a video game wall uh, of different images from classic games and things, pieces that I've made and decals. And um, it's a pretty wild space. So it's going to be a fun backdrop for for Ryan and I to keep, just keep make sure everything's running smoothly, all the presenters have what they need, and that they're still able to give papers and present their research. This is such an important step for any academic. Conference papers are often the seed of a publication. You have a new idea, you're excited about it, you've done just enough work where you feel like you have something to say, and you're kind of test driving it with your colleagues who can really call you out and give you new avenues to go and explore. And it's it's such a beautiful thing to give a conference paper. And then to go back and go back to the drawing board, maybe read some things in a new area, and then polish that into something you might eventually publish. Will these talks be available for people who aren't able to attend in real time? I believe we are planning to archive them, but I don't know exactly. Right now, we're just kind of like trying to get the 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 process moving. So we've notified all of the presenters. We're going to be sending out, Ryan will be sending out a guide of sort of what they need. You know, he's, he's saying, I'd like... A good webcam is always a good idea, but you know he's giving he's going to give specific advice in terms of things like microphones and headphones, and you know what are we going to need to make sure that we get as clean of a feed as we can, and then we can broadcast that out um, for sure. It will be happening. I mean, all day, like eight to four, probably both days. Um, we'll we'll see how the schedule changes if anybody needs you know for any reason needs to actually pull the paper entirely. But as far as I know, most folks are planning to 
to do it. So we'll be kind of around all that weekend. And then I'm, I believe we will have the capability to just have everything recorded. And Ryan usually does keep an archive of even our streams that he slowly uploads to YouTube. And um, so I imagine that there's going to be a way to access it, but it's sort of a stay tuned. We're still very much uh, <laughs> taking it day by day and, and figuring out how to, how to make things happen quickly. Given that the conference is now online, is it accurate to still call it the North American conference? Well, <laughs> the intriguing thing about that is while while it is going to have this potential for global engagement, most of the presenters tend to be North American, but we have a sister conference that sort of covers the UK, uh, and that is just called Ludo. And it's really Tim Summers is sort of our, our uh, head of the organization over there with Mikhail Kemp and Mark Sweeney. Those three have really put together a wonderful conference that has just gone all all around Europe. So there there are folks that are able to, if they're not based in in North America, they can kind of get over there and present there. And we try as much as we can to make sure that these these really are sister conferences. That you know, every now and then when we can make the jump to wherever it is, like I, I presented at Ludo in 2014 when it was in Chichester in the UK. So a lot of us try to make sure we get over to the other one and that we're, we're still sharing work with our colleagues that aren't based in North America. But yeah, in the future, you know, we may, we may see more digital involvement, virtual lightning talks, pre-recorded videos that people have made in lieu of giving a traditional red conference paper. Um, we're seeing more and more things in that format. I'm actually going to be giving a virtual talk um, on Untitled Goose Game uh, in a couple of weeks. So I will be uh, not speaking directly to them. I will pre-record everything uh, over some actual game audio footage, and I'm going to sort of take apart the WC tracks and, and show how it's used in the game and then connect it out to uh, some some of the literature on actually children's television, because we remarked in a playthrough of this game in the fall on our Twitch channel, a lot of folks were saying, this reminds me of Mr. Rogers. And I thought that's interesting because Mr. Rogers had a jazz pianist, not Debussy. So I, I'm starting to explore some of the connections. Um, what made people say this sounds like like children's television, like PBS? Stay tuned for that. That will definitely be made available on YouTube. So I imagine other folks that are doing the pre-recorded lightning talks will make them publicly accessible in one form or another. It may be all of the talks just because of the nature of how we're doing the conference. Untitled Goose Game and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is the crossover I didn't know I wanted. <laughs> I know, right? That sounds amazing. There's something about the the way the piano gets used. And of course, it isn't just any WC track. It's it's specifically minstrels from from book one of WC's preludes that that gets used in the game. It was of course used in the trailer, uh, in and chopped up in such a way that that folks went, oh my goodness, is this what the game is? It it sounds so dynamic and reactive to the player. So we're taking uh, music and adapting it in in this very ludic way that these little. Two, two beat stems of the original WC are getting remixed and, and repurposed and popping up in different places, but it still sounds really cohesive in the soundscape. So that, that's going to be fascinating. I can't wait. I'm hoping that this talk will be useful to me, but also when I teach game music and I talk about adaptation, you know, I can play them the original WC and then we can, we can look at how it's used. Here's, here's an entire level with, 
you know, I'm going to do overlays of the actual snippets of the sheet music and people can see, oh, here's this one popping up. Here's this, here's this. Um, and we can kind of move through it that way and compare that against the original sort of uncut version that's recorded. So that's going to be a lot of fun. No, it must be great to be able to bring your personal and academic passion to these other topics like teaching, which you do plenty of. You talked a little bit about annotating the Castlevania soundtrack. Can you give us some more examples of how you bring video games into your teaching? Absolutely. Um, so with the performance degrees, um, I have a lot of experience in violin and viola. I'm actively gigging. So I play, a, I play a lot of weddings and, and gatherings uh, with a string quartet, duos, solo. And there are a lot of folks that ask for video game music. And so I'm often transcribing game audio and then immediately making an arrangement that is playable by any number of musicians, depending on what I need it for. And so as I have this growing literature, you know, this repertoire, there are students that are like, I really like this music. And it's interesting to me that it's not always the new games. You know, it, it isn't something that just came out. They'll say, like, I, the, Castlevania, you know, the, these students weren't born when those games came out. So they, they find it and they're just really drawn to it. Um, and they're interested in game music in general. And so I've sort of had that realization that no teacher needs to just teach what, the way they were taught it leads to stagnation. You know, if I just teach the Suzuki books, the standard, you know, kind of method books all the way up all the time, it means it's foolproof in a way, because I know that book four, I'm going to need to be strong in certain skills. You know, I, I need to be able to do certain types of bowings. I need to be comfortable shifting into different positions on up the neck of the string. But what kind of teacher does that make me, you know? So I, I, I sort of got it in my head that, you know, I got this PhD, which in theory prepares me to be a lifelong learner. So what if I kept learning with my students? And a good way to do that is by throwing new music at them. You know, if, I, if they want to learn the Tetris theme, guess what? You still need to have your bow on the string. <laughs> you still need to make good contact and draw the bow straight and get good tone. And you still need to be in tune. And it's almost like any of these skills are transferable to any piece of music you play. So what I use to get to that doesn't matter. It only matters in so much as we want to make sure that it's a level that won't lead to frustration. We want to make sure that anything I assign a student um, is, is at a level where they're not going to not going to not be able to, to perform the skill. Um, but Beyond that, the sky's the limit. We find ways to make it work and it engages them in the music making. They take ownership of it in, in a way that is really inspiring. And then they go off and they start transcribing things themselves and they bring it in and, and we talk about how do you, what, what is this process like? How do I transcribe something? How do I then take that and make that into an arrangement? What do I need to do? So it ends up being this very holistic way of teaching music in general, but it starts from something that the kids are invested in and they, they really care about. Are your students specifically in a ludomusicology track or are they sometimes surprised to find video games in their music studies? Oh, I'd say most of them are very surprised. Um, I do teach college courses on like the history of video game music, mostly to non-music majors. So it's just folks who are interested in it. But my violin students are there to learn how to play the violin. So when 
when we tell they come in and they say, I really like this video game. And I, I come in that, you know, I had a student that said, I really like Sonic. And I brought in a, a version of Sonic Boom from Sonic CD because they mentioned Sonic CD specifically. I brought it in and I'm like, here we go. And the look of, oh my goodness, I can learn to play the thing I like. Um, that's really empowering for a student. They, they get into music because they want to, they want to learn to have the skill to play whatever it is that they're interested in. So not saying you need to, to pass X, Y, and Z, you know, traditional pieces before you're allowed to do that and say, no, we can incorporate this at any level. We just have to figure out what's going to be feasible where you're at, given your skills right now. That's great that you can use any tool to connect with your students. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Sometimes it's pop music, you know, sometimes it's, uh, it can be anything, (laughs) but just getting myself out of the, the same old, same old, um, and, and recognizing that like, I can be a little bit more focused on the, the skills that are, it's just like a professional approaching a piece. I'm going to look through it and go, okay, I need to, you know, run through this passage because it's got kind of a tricky fingering and just being able to sort of look at the music and appraise what, what's happening in it and what skills are necessary and then figure out, you know, is this something that I can give them that they will rise up to and that will help teach them the skill or should I hold off until and pick something else that will develop it. And then, then we give them this. That's the challenge in it for me. It keeps it really fresh, um, but they feed on that energy. They see how excited I am to not be doing exactly what I was trained on. And that and it's like living vicariously through your kids. You know, you're like, I didn't get to do this until I was a lot older. And now I'm giving you a tool that might make you a lifelong learner or at least a lifelong appreciator of music. You ever see the movie Mr. Holland's Opus? Oh, totally. I love that one. There, I mean, that's a whole genre, right? The inspiring teacher goes in and turns around the band program. Uh, Music of the Heart was another one of those, but I always liked Mr. Holland's Opus. I thought Richard Dreyfus was particularly good in that. You're right. The, the whole genre can be a little bit cliche, but I love the part where the principal calls him in and says, there are people in this community who believe that rock and roll is a message sent from the devil himself. What am I supposed to tell them about you teaching the students this music? And he says... You tell them that I am teaching music and that I will use anything from Beethoven to Billie Holiday to rock and roll if I think it'll help me teach a student to love music. And I love that video games mm-hmm. are now part of that toolkit, that you can use video games to help a student learn to love music. Yeah, that, I mean, that. there's my teaching philosophy right there. You wrote it for me. <laughs> <laughs> So we've been talking about teaching, classic games, modern games, silence, and disability. Do you have any other current projects or passions that you would like to share with us? Well, uh, I have a, a recent chapter that just came out. This volume was highly anticipated in the field. It is music in the role-playing game. Heroes and Harmonies, I think was the... Let me find the subtitle. It's right over here. Yes. Music in the role-playing game, Heroes and Harmonies, edited by Will Gibbons and Steve Rialli, who started NACVAGUM, as we so lovingly pronounce the acronym. And it's like a book of all my friends. (laughs) And I did a chapter for that on um, a game called Cleopatra no Matakura, which was Uematsu's last game before Final Fantasy came out. So... Uh, the chapter is called the penultimate fantasy, haha. Um, <laughs> but I looked at uh, the way that when a game is set in ancient Egypt 
or a film or, you know, really any, any sort of setting. Um, the music ends up taking on all of these exoticist tropes in order, and it, it supplants what other, whatever other functions we might want the audio to fulfill. So I argue that, you know, by this point, Dragon Quest had made a huge splash and everybody was doing RPGs like Dragon Quest. It's kind of that quasi-medieval setting and you're the heroes and you're wandering around the map and you get in your random encounters. And already we were starting to see tropes solidify. You're in a town. A town sounds safe, right? It's And there's musical markers that make a, a village in a, a role-playing game sound like a safe space where you know you're not going to get hit with a random encounter. Um, it's, it's moving very stepwise. It's not leaping very big in the melody. It's tuneful. It's in a major key. It sounds happy. Simple harmonic motion. Like it, a lot of these different things contribute to giving it that sense of, oh, I'm home. I'm safe. But what Uematsu did in this this game, which is set in Egypt, and you know you're a a, stu- a student whose father disappears, archaeologist father disappears in a tomb, and you kind of go searching for him. I noticed that the opening town theme, in particular, was unsafe. You know, it, it sort of gave you this like, ooh, there's something weird happening here. And sure enough, you could get in random encounters in the town. Um, so it was interesting how it was both playing into stereotype, but also, you know, the dungeon themes and the, the shop themes, it was all about incorporating these markers of like, listen, doesn't it sound exotic and Egyptian? Like we're, we're marking that we are in a weird location as opposed to just saying, oh, you know, shop theme, like what should that sound like? Um, So I'm really interested in exoticism in general, but especially as it applies to Egypt, I've always been kind of into Egyptology. So finding ways to work that into my musical work is really, really fulfilling. And I can say that's my favorite thing I have written to date is this chapter on this, this game that was only released on the Famicom recently did get a fan translation that you can play in English a ton of transcriptions in that one. I, I transcribe basically the entire score. Uh, so there's a lot of musical examples and just sort of talking about, you know, why does ancient Egypt get this different status <laughs> compared to, to any other setting? Even just if you read like the chapters, like what the chapters are in it, it's like, it gets you excited. I don't know if you see the, the chapter titles, but there's, there's work on Bard's Tale, Earthbound, Final Fantasy IV, Final Fantasy VI, Diablo three. Stardew Valley, Skyrim, and World of Warcraft, among others. So <laughs> wow, it's a all-star hit. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, it's it's really great, and it's it's got some of the best the best writers in the field. So it's a it's really an all-star collection too, just from the the standpoint of the scholars doing the work. So this book came out July of 2019. Mm-hmm. The MSRP on the paperback is about fifty dollars. Who would you say the target audience is? Hmm. Certainly fellow academics are all about this. Um, mine does have a lot of musical examples. So if you don't read uh, music, Western musical notation, I try to make sure that I describe everything in the prose. So even if there's a musical example and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't really, I don't know how to read music. Um, I like to see that it's somewhat accessible, but uh, it's definitely written at an academic level, but I think that anybody writing in game music tends to be accessible to folks that just are interested and that care. 
Um, my, my own husband is a programmer and, and not a musician. And he comes to the North American conference on video game music every year. And because he's so passionate about video games and he knows them so well, he's able to follow along with quite a lot of it. Um, you know, we're playing musical examples back. And so it's like, I may not know the nuts and bolts of some of the theory you're talking about, but like, I'm seeing, I'm seeing how you're discussing how this is used. So it's a pretty wide range within the field, depending on how analytical the person is. But I'd say in general, most of our stuff is, is pretty approachable. And certainly, I think anybody that emails me and says like, hey, I don't know that I can swing, you know, paying through the paywall to get your article. A lot of folks will just email it back to you. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a pretty open field because we're sort of constrained by by those journals as well. We need to publish in them for our own field, you know, for our purposes. Maybe we're trying to get tenure or something, build a dossier. So like you do need to publish in certain spaces. Um, and as a younger scholar, you may not have a lot of the ability to say, I only want to publish in an open source journal or something like that. You kind of take what you can get. But as the field matures, some of these folks are getting tenure and they're able to sort of insist, I want my entire book to be available you know, online, free to read, that kind of thing. We're moving to more of an open model. But uh, in the meantime, I would say if you if you come across something that looks interesting, and you feel like you're not able to, to access it for whatever reason, you know, try to find the person's email. Um, they, they tend to be pretty, pretty sharing with with their work. And excited that people even want to read it. A lot of us like assume that, you know, this is just for for me and for my immediate colleagues. And like, who who's gonna who's gonna care that I wrote an article about Tetris or Mario Paint composer or you know X Y Z? So just like the composers are often surprised that we're we're writing about their work and working on it, I think academics are even more surprised when non academics want to read our work <laughs> and flattered. And grateful. And you're currently working to adapt your own thesis on disability representation and uh, games through audio into a book as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. The fun thing about that is I can dump a lot of the chapters that were sort of the, here's what game audio is, uh, and just cut them severely. You know, I, I don't think I need quite as much of the, the, the background as I had in the dissertation, because the dissertation was for my committee. And there were things that I did specifically for them that I can remove for a general audience. But the other thing that I can do is now that I don't need to sort of have that delimited scope of I'm only going to look at early game audio, I am now planning chapters beyond my main case studies from that, which were Final Fantasy VI, Dr. Mario, Killer Instinct. Um, trying to think what I those were kind of the big the big case studies in there. I can expand outwards. So I have chapters planned on To the Moon, Celeste, Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice, um, and, and a few others. Uh, that Dragon Cancer, uh, that, that paper that I gave was in preparation for a book chapter on that. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at all of these ways that we're representing any sort of non-normative body state non-normative mental state um, in in game sound. Um, but now I'm looking at a lot of indie games and I'm looking at a lot more modern games than I have in the past. Awesome. Well, it's exciting to know that there is so much more to come and so much more to learn. Where can people who are interested in learning more about ludomusicology and hearing more about your upcoming work, where can they follow you? You can follow me on pretty much every platform at Musicologist, M-U-S-I-C, 
O-L-O-G-E-S-S. You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I hopefully, especially with the, the quarantining, will be maybe streaming some more. <laughs> Although we do stream every Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern at uh, twitch.tv slash bardic knowledge. So you can find us there. But if you follow me, I am often retweeting folks in the field. That's a wonderful, wonderful place to start. Tag us, send us a DM and say, hey, I'm interested in reading more on, on this, or is there any work on this game? And folks will flood you with responses <laughs> about what's out there and make sure that, that you can get connected to it. So we're a very approachable bunch. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. There'll be links to all of those resources in the show notes for this podcast found at polygamer.net. Dr. Dana Plank, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. You know, you have me thinking I need to go to MAGFest more often because in one of your talks, you talked about how villains always play the organ, you know? That's, oh, yeah. That. And the last time I went to MAGFest, I met somebody who had written a paper about how all Disney villains have foreign accents. Ah. And this is just another way that you not only represent the, the villain, but also how you other somebody. And yeah. it's very, you know, Eurocentric. Yeah. And, and often, you know, there's some, there's something that marks them as other, you know, with their, a really common, the Kafka chapter, it was basically like the, the crazy guy taking over the world trope is so tired. Right. And you're meant to be fearful of him because he's unpredictable and uh you know he's not following a rational thought he's kind of like the joker and batman he just wants to watch the world burn and that's what's scary you're meant to be fearful not just of the fact that he's got a lot of power and that he's using it to kill people but that there's this there's this like i don't really know what's coming next aspect um and people are really really fearful about that and it's it's stigmatizing and problematic um, but it's common, and there are ways that, that then translates to the music. Chaotic evil, you can understand. It's the chaotic neutral you got to watch out for. Exactly. Exactly.